Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hi, I'm Danny Roth, and this is Everyday Horror Presents The 13 Days of Halloween, where Sci-Fi Wire has some frightening, funny, and occasionally even insightful conversations about horror movies for the 13 days leading up to Halloween. It's like the 12 days of Christmas, but better. On today's episode, we're actually not talking about a movie at all. We're talking about those delightful assimilating robot zombies from Star Trek's Delta Quadrant, The Borg. Long before The Borg could be beaten by holographic bullets, before there was a Borg queen who tried to tempt Data with goose flesh, before Seven of Nine wore a corseted catsuit with built-in heels for what we're sure is a thoroughly scientific reason, The Borg were actually pretty scary. They were unstoppable. They wanted to add your biological and technological distinctiveness to their own. And resistance, for a little while there, seemed genuinely futile. My guests for this episode are Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, the hosts of The Greatest Generation, a Star Trek podcast by two guys who are a little embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. We talk about how the Borg fit into horror tropes, what makes slow assimilation scary, and why it is that Riker didn't rescue that poor little Borg baby. Boldly listen, won't you? Here is my question regarding the Borg. Did you guys grow up watching this show? What was the first time that you remember being familiar with the Borg? Did you watch Q Who first? Did you see something else after? What was the order of events in which you first became aware of them as a Star Trek villain? Oh, I totally grew grew up watching the show. I w- this was like the age sweet spot for me. I took it very seriously. I uh, I as well grew up watching this show and almost exclusively this show because I was allowed to watch one hour of television maximum per day. <laughs> and, uh, and Were I, you being and punished I, or that was just the rule? That was the rule. That was wow. the, the rule my entire childhood until I was a teenager. So I cashed all of that in on Star Trek, which was on at like 6 p.m., uh, you know, in syndication every weeknight. Q-Who uh, aired in 1989, which makes me 10 years old when that episode aired. That makes you five years old, right, Ben? Right. Yeah, so I would have I would have seen it before Best of Both Worlds, I think, but in, in kind of jumbled reruns. Right. I didn't really understand, like, the concept of there's an order in which television is released <laughs> <laughs> for a long time. I think, I don't I, I still might not totally get that. Yeah. Well, you don't need to know now, streaming, et cetera. But um, so Q Who aired on my birthday. Wow. I turned nine the day that that episode aired. I think it's the only episode of any Star Trek show that aired on my birthday. Wow. Uh, so that's a real fun fact. Did your parents make you a black cube-shaped cake? <laughs> yeah, my parents are time travelers, so they knew uh-huh. ahead. And then, yeah. yeah. No, that would be great. I don't know why that never happened. It's a cake parents... that's strangely, strangely, strangely generalized in design. There's no <laughs> layers of any kind. It's just kind of a jumble of frosting and crumbs of cake. You know what? That'd be Man, a that... great cake because there would be no frosting inside. It would just be dense cake. That'd be all right. You'd probably even like that cake, Ben. No, I don't like cake. Oh, wow. Not even I don't know. with it sounds, that can you sounds adequate. <laughs> sounds perfectly adequate. Um yeah, I don't here's what I remember. I remember being very afraid of the Borg. 
because I was nine, and they were scary when I saw them. Were yeah. you as scared as kids? Did you watch the Borg and go, this is scary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're, t- they're super scary. You can't outrun them. You can't destroy them. If you damage them, the essence of what they are remains. They regenerate and keep coming. Eventually, you will weaken. Your reserves will be gone. They are relentless. Do you remember why, as a kid, that was scary to you? Because I feel like there's a world of difference between uh, what makes you scared as a child and what makes you scared as an adult of something like the Borg. I think for me, it was that they they appear so out of place. Star Trek is so clean and organized and put together. And then this big black ship gets on the screen and they're just ignoring all of our friends on the Enterprise. And they that doesn't mean they, they aren't very threatening right away, but but it's just odd. This oddity is there in front of them and the music changes. The music is a big part of of the Borg on Star Trek The Next Generation, I think. They get their own little theme. I think that also their kind of relentlessness is very scary. The way the, the way it doesn't really matter what the Enterprise does, the Borg are going to do what they're going to do, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. And I think from a child's perspective, that's a very familiar fear because you're small and adults are scary and, and you don't really have any power over, over them. But And relentlessness is straight out of horror films too, right? Like you can't stop Michael Myers. He always gets up and right. chases after you. Yeah, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but um, while I was thinking about um, the Borg as these horror villains, it had occurred to me that uh, in a way, because they've already existed for Guinan, and as far as we know, she's the one person that we've got that's survived them. She's kind of like a like a Jamie Lee Curtis final girl for the Borg. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of her that way. But I guess she is, you know, much like uh, much like her character in Halloween. Like she's warning people, and people aren't listening. Like yeah. Guinan is yeah. in her office, looking at the view screen, going, "Picard, it's time to turn back now." And it it just doesn't get through to him in a very frustrating way, in a very similarly frustrating way. The way she talks about them is kind of the telling the ghost story at the beginning of the horror film right. trope. Also, like the she's definitely like playing a, a very familiar horror film role. She you could also call her the large Marge of <laughs> of the story. That was kind of never really there. <laughs> it sounded like a Borg cube. Being dropped off the Empire State Building. <laughs> yeah, and then she'd make the face. Whoopi yeah, could right. make it. She could do it. She doesn't even need claymation. Screw that. Right. Professional comedian. But um, I don't remember what... They were just scary to me as a kid. I think they just looked wrong. They just You saw them and you were like, pale, weird robots. Yeah. They definitely have some, some robot scary and some Dracula scary about them. Yeah, yeah. And they're also kind of like zombies, too. They're like robot zombies. And Data, for being a machine, is so, like, symmetrical and perfect. And there's something about, like, the asymmetry of the Borg that is also a little creepy. Like, one super long arm. Yeah, I saw somebody point out the fact that, you know, we're not scared of um, getting implants and stuff. You know, like, we have that in modern medicine. We had that to some degree in the 1980s also. Uh, And yet we're freaked out by the Borg because they do it completely unnecessarily. You go, you don't need this hand. Here's a giant, long, creepy metal thing instead. <laughs> I tried to explain this to Ben about his calf implants, but he didn't listen. I think they look great. They do look great. You made me a believer. 
Yeah, that's why you went and got that butt implant. Right, just Whoa. one though, the asymmetrical butt implant. Yeah. It offsets the wallet, that's why I got it. <laughs> I actually got the other butt implant. Oh, wow. Yeah, we went in, that was it was it. a package deal. Nice, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a good way to do it, get the volume discount. They had us on side-by-side operating uh, tables, like in face-off. <laughs> Wait, which one of us is, uh, is the Nick Cage and which one of us is the John Travolta in this I'm situation? obviously Nick Cage. Dan, come on. Are you? Yeah. Wow. Get right. it together. Jeez. You've got the extremely like hairy John Travolta butt. Whoa. I guess I'll I'll take it, you know. <laughs> That's better than having no butt at all. Yeah, isn't it weird? I was thinking about this um in in my research, which is that the Borg were like talking about the technological stuff, but that wasn't the original intention at all. The whole deal was that they were going to be related to those weird uh bugs from conspiracy. You don't understand. We mean you no harm. We seek peaceful coexistence. See, that's, I think that's just bad planning. The bugs from conspiracy should have been their own thing, and they should have come back all the time. This is, a, this is one of the grave mistakes on Star Trek The Next Generation, is not calling that back ever. I agree. I wish they'd brought them back. But I think the the notion, right, um, I think that when they were coming up with the idea for the Borg and they had thought of them as insectoids, they were thinking about the Cronenberg version of The Fly. Because I've, um, I've seen interviews with the, with the writers from that period and talking about the idea that um, insects don't have politics. <laughs> and that's straight out of The Fly. That Seth Brundle talks about how, if you, have right. you ever met a, an insect politician? There isn't one because they're just brutal. Uh, and so that was sort of the original intention. They wanted them to be insectoids because insects don't give a shit at all. They're just mean and destructive. And what they wound up with was a thing that they could do on the cheap. But the Borg, for being so sedate, quiet, they don't really do a lot of chatting, are a really destructive voice, uh, force in a way. They, I mean, like they annihilate what you are in place of something new, which is just as terrible. And it's interesting to think about it contextually because um, when you look at not just Q-Who but at Best of Both Worlds, there's this idea of what they represent because this stuff was coming out like sometime between what, like 1989, the first episode aired, so like 90, 91. So what were we culturally afraid of at the time? I guess like a Randian fear of Marxism, Cold War. One of the horrible outcomes to the Borg is that like they they are colonizers and they don't believe that they're doing anything wrong. Like their yeah. their goal is to is to raise the basement of of life in the galaxy. And they and they feel great to the extent that they could feel anything about anything. Like they, they feel fine about that that goal. I think it's also that that kind of like the influx of technology into our lives and like the that the programmatic nature of the the Borg's goals like that it's just kind of what they are designed to do it's it's it is an unfeeling goal is is definitely like a fear that we were grappling with as a people as uh, you know the internet and computers became a part of life like what what is the logical extension of this yeah i think we were also um feeling a certain degree of Guilt, because it's interesting, right? Like the comparison that Picard makes in Best of Both Worlds, because he goes in, he talks to Guinan, and 
he's doing the tour of the ship and she's talking about how, you know, that's what captains do when they're going into a doomed battle. And I think he, he says something about, uh, you know, is this what, what, you know, Honorius was doing when he saw the Visigoths come over the seventh hill, you know? And it's like, it's interesting because the Federation by then, um, I don't think was ever really referred to in a negative context except for conspiracy. Otherwise, it's this perfectly idyllic society because that was Gene Roddenberry's big will. And yet he's drawing a comparison to the final days of Rome at a time in which it was this bloated, excessive mess. And here this episode is airing at the end of the excess of the 1980s. I think that's kind of interesting, too, is that I think there's the fear of the consequences of the choices that we'd made that led to the excess of that time. I was really struck by how much a horror film, Q Who, felt like, and then Best of Both Worlds Part 1 felt like, and then I think Best of Both Worlds Part 2 takes a page from the Aliens playbook and makes it an action movie sequel right. to Completely a agree. horror movie uh, first entry. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that even even Best of Both Worlds Part One to a degree, it's just it's it's so slow moving. It's like all the prep, you know. It's kind of the beginning of Aliens because Aliens isn't really it doesn't become an action movie until Act Three. Alien and Jaws have that same thing where it takes a really long time before you see the the monster, and uh, and I think Best of Both Worlds Part One follows in that tradition brilliantly. Right, and and also like. Three quarters of Q Who and the two Best of Both Worlds episodes are in retreat before we're finally on offense toward the end. And that is a very Aliens type of of narrative arc, too. It's like if Aliens paused every five minutes to have a a meeting in the conference room. Right. (laughs) And yet it it, it works. I think the, you know, Star Trek is, is sort of fortunate in that it has these things to sort of fall back on so if you're a big star trek fan you get a you get a bonus right so like who's Q, the burke scary of best of both worlds <laughs> ben, oh man who's it's the one saying hansen, that, right? that the borg cube is a very high dollar value <laughs> hansen yes oh, it is admiral hansen's Maybe. an idiot I'd, i actually think burke is smarter than hansen yeah it might be shelby i guess yeah Oh, that was her plan all along. She was acting like she was trying to stop the Borg. You know really... what? Here's my hot take. In Q Who, it's Picard. Yeah. Because Picard wants to stay and study, and Guinan's like, let's nuke the cube from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I don't know. Now I'm just thinking about how Shelby would be a bad boss. It was when I when I rewatched it this time, when when they're you know, Riker keeps going, Listen, there are union rules. We're taking a break. Right. And she's like, Me and Data can keep working, and he's like Break union rules. We're taking one, and, I, and all I could think was, you know, I don't always agree with Riker, but shit, I'm with him on this. Like, just I don't know. Like, if if, if she was the first officer all the time, would anybody even be allowed breaks? She would have get, get Wesley in here. How old is he? Doesn't matter. He's working a twelve hour shift. I think she's such a well written character because she does have that kind of season one Riker thing about her, where she's super brash and headstrong. And through her, you get to see how far he's come as a character, as somebody who understands that, like, you also need to be on your game, and you can't be on your game if you're not well-rested. The, the friction that they have is that he sees some of himself in her, and, and, and we know from 
a bunch of episodes of Star Trek that he has some real like internal struggles. And when he sees himself in somebody else, he often grates against them. There's a great scene in that episode where, I mean, we are shown it throughout, but then we get a little bit of tell in 10 forward when Troy and Riker sit down and talk and he's like, what the fuck happened to me? Like (laughs) I used to be, I used to be awesome. And now I'm, and now Shelby thinks I'm a dick. Like it's one of my favorite scenes in that episode for that reason, because it's so, it shouldn't be that good for a tell scene. Like, like Ben and I usually dislike when the show pivots to tell and not show, but it's, it's super effective because it's two very close characters scrutinizing the changes of uh, of one of them over the course of several years and it's it's great and it's true welding instructor alex declare knows firsthand how vr training platforms like forge fx can help meet the demand for skilled workers anywhere you go look there's going to be a shortage of welders VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Do you like the 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 I guess the like the most famous scene, which is uh, Guinan talking to Riker? The the that is now your chair. Yeah, I scene because that's also a lot of that's also a lot of tell. It is, but they've done such a great job of you know like the we've pulled the captain's chair out for Riker three times now. Like there's so much there's so much about what being a captain means to Riker in both episodes, and that. I think that that scene comes in part two, right? The when when Guinan confronts yeah. Riker. Yeah, you are relied on to remember a lot of that conflict from the first episode when she starts talking about that. Yeah, especially since there was that summer break. Yeah, like the like, longest three months of my life. The the Magellan was the ship that was offered to him. They name check that when they're reading off the list of ships that they see burning in space and. You know, you see him gulp, but they don't go, that's the ship you were going to be the captain of, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's it's very, they they do treat it with some subtlety. So when she's in there trying to make him understand that he needs to be full captain, not interim captain now, uh, that's that scene is that much more powerful. The way that Guinan does that, like it's so it's so motivating and also scary because on the one hand, Guinan is like, you need to throw away the book. You need to be your own man. You need to finally be captain. And on the other hand, I think she opens the conversation with, no one on this ship thinks they're going to live to tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Great pep speech. Yeah. Thanks. Go out there. Go get him, tiger. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, Riker's also terrible at it, too, because he also tries to give a, a speech, and his is like, I wish Picard was here. 
Yeah. I miss I'd my like dad. That's his speech. Too. Shelby, yeah. uh, I really wish it wasn't this way, but you're going to be the first officer. <laughs> yeah, just just a lot of confidence. <laughs> the morale boost is 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 potent. Or if uh, I thought anyway, about look. making you XO, but you're terrible at everything. <laughs> yep. So that decision was easy. But um, let's talk about the Borg, I guess, a little bit more um, specifically. What are your thoughts about, um, from Q-Who, the, the, the baby Borgs? Is that scary or silly? I can't tell. It's scary yeah. for a 10-year-old, which I was at the time. Like, yeah, that's that's super scary. Like, why are they? They're kept in. A, they're kept in a wardrobe. What's up with that? It seems yeah. hard to breathe in there. <laughs> I remember being really scared too. I think, um, you know, I don't think of TNG as being a children's show, and I don't think that's quite how it's positioned. But kids watched it. A but lot of kids watched it. I, I don't right. know how aware they were at the time. Yeah, and I wonder, like, with the new shows, if they're making any, if, if they're thinking at all about that, because, like, you know, occasionally there will be some pretty bloody stuff in Star Trek Discovery. People swear and stuff. It's not, it's not like family friendly in the same way that TNG is, but it's an interesting line to ride where you're trying to make a show that will appeal from to everyone from seven to seventy and. Like how do you how do you do that? And I, I'm sure that uh, some of the camp, some of the some of the corniness in Star Trek is there because of that. Yeah, I think weirdly um, in the rewatch of Q Who, I thought it is still it's it's silly because the visual of the of the the baby being in the wardrobe is kind of funny, but just the notion of this kid's out out of the womb just popped out. Let's put a let's put a calculator on him. Is weird and and not right, and so it is. I think still kind of scary. And the other thing that it made me think about was just the way that they did assimilation in general. My question to you about this is, they boy, they really changed the way that that worked between best of both worlds and first contact, in which you know they could just put the tubules in and then you're toast. Yeah, but. What's scarier? Is it scarier to be destroyed in pieces or to be assimilated all at once? Yeah, I guess they kind of go from just being marauders to vampires. They don't really show anybody being assimilated in Best of Both Worlds, so it's... uh, Other than Picard, they just show the the parts of it, right? They just show a little bit of it, that one scene where he's crying and they put the thing on his arm. Right. And they make him white. They make him even whiter than he already was. But it's it's like a slow kind of clunky process whereas it seems like it seems like you, if you get if you get the tubules in first contact it'll it just kind of like happens like stuff starts bursting out of your cheek and forming board implants all over you yeah it's a different kind of horror in that film too because you go in stages like you see drones walking around wearing torn starfleet uniforms and you know when we see assimilated picard on screen he's He's fully formed. He's wearing the Batman abs. He's got the whole thing going. There's there's no there's no half measure about it. I find the the in pieces to be scarier in hindsight. Even though I, I acknowledge that, you know, we get to this place in First Contact as a film where they have this huge budget and they can do these things in whatever way that they want and that is a kind of scary that they've presented. The fact that it's happening kind of 
slowly that they're just taking you one piece at a time, which is a quote that I think that Guinan actually says uh, to Riker in that, that big ready room speech. In this room, if he had died, it would be easier, but he didn't. It took him from us a piece at a time. I think is supposed to sort of suggest that they don't do it all at once, that it happens a little piece at a time, just like when we didn't even know who they were yet. And then the first time they're ever mentioned is the neutral zone, which is the end of season one, right? Where there are these outposts that have just been scooped up. That's it. And they're all the way on the outskirts. They're just taking apart the Federation and to some degree, the Romulan empire away just a little tiny piece at a time. And that kind of feels scarier to me than they put the tubules in and it's done. I wish they'd never like shown one of those scoop ups in action. Because I definitely have abandoned that as an idea by the time they got to the, the film. Like they're, they're not uh, they're not scooping up San Francisco in first contact. Do you think it's weird that in Q Who, Riker never attempts to save the, the baby in the nursery? You think if there's one drone he's going to bring back, it's going to be the baby. He yeah, never I mean, even I think thinks there's, a, there's a cut scene where he just he just it goes into his head and he imagines trying to raise this Borg and he's like, nah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm unfit to be a father. Always have been. <laughs> a little early in my life for that kind of responsibility. Part of the montage yeah, is like playing playing catch and he like underhands a ball at the Borg and his big unwieldy <laughs> arm like can't get up in time to catch it. <laughs> it bounces off a uh, a deflecting yeah. uh, panel. <laughs> Cut to the interior of like teenage Borg's bedroom and like the machine, like the rhythmic machine sound and the door opens. Riker peeks in and he's like horrified. I told you no locked doors in my uh, in my quarters. (laughs) He's trying to add his biological distinctiveness to his sock. (laughs) The final question is this. You face off against the Borg. It's you. You're on a you're on a spaceship. Pew pew. Um, do you think you're gonna? Our do weapons you think have can, no effect, Captain. Yada, yeah, yada, yeah. Yada. Do you think the, Do you think that you could beat the Borg? Do you think you've got the chutzpah, the I ingenuity? Think, I think if I had Worf with me, I could because the one thing that Worf has that proves to be effective every time is the Batleth, but they mm. never use it. You know? Like, yeah, they don't if, use melee weapons against the Borg, do they? You gotta fix bayonets when the Borgs are are. Uh, are boarding your ship, and then and then you're going to be fine. They don't use any projectile weapons, so you're going to pull your best steely knife and say, uh, "Assimilate this." That's your mm-hmm. that's your play. Yep. All right. I don't know what the odds are on that, but it's good. I like it, Adam. Uh, I would I wouldn't have a chance, and and further, I would just give myself over to them because uh, God, what a relief, you know. Finally, get assimilated. I don't have to worry about any schedules or work or. <laughs> relationships anymore it's all over you get to become part of the collective yeah and then you make decisions together thousands of friends not just your one friend ben (laughs) wouldn't that be nice (laughs) (laughs) what would i even do with all those friends and they know me and i know them there's no lies between us yeah sounds pretty nice doesn't it i know for a fact that i would survive the borg i know it you lie here, were you ready? I've got my secret weapon. It's my terrible personality. You think that they just they wouldn't want to be myself, and they'll go, "No thanks." Yeah, that's kind of what they say to Data, right? 
Yeah, I think that's my trick is I just, you know, I'm going to be the worst Brent Spiner I can be and just, you know, the 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 hammy overacting Brent Spiner with the with the with the Joe Piscopo jokes and the, and the mugging to the camera and I think at that point they'll just leave me alone. It's worth trying. <laughs> I feel good about it. I feel good about my chances. <laughs> yeah, stay away from my cube. I'm, I'm happy there. Get your own. that's our episode none of us got assimilated but Adam wishes he did tweet us with what you do with one of those long creepy Borg arms at sci-fi wire and while you're there you can find Ben Harrison at Benjamin R that's A-H-R Adam Pranica at cut for time and me your host Danny Roth at Danny Ordinary the theme song for everyday horror is composed by Thomas William Dyer II Thanks for listening, and remember, sometimes the best way to deal with the horrors of every day is with a little everyday horror. See you tomorrow.